Hello, hello, and welcome to Sheep Thrills. Happy Wednesday morning. I'm so glad you guys are all here. Um, on today's episode, we are continuing with our midterm madness. What's going on in the worlds of the midterms? We are now 19 days from election day, so things are things are moving and grooving. They're continuing to move and groove. Um, so we got a lot to talk about there. And then we are also going to cover the potentially last January 6th commission hearing. Uh, that included some some never before seen footage, some some vaguely new evidence, uh, just a couple things to talk about there. Um, and then of course we've got a very fun and very well, is it fun? I guess it depends on your definition of fun. But we do have a deeply strange, wild political story of the week coming down the pike at the end of the show, so stay tuned. Um, so first of all, midterm madness. As I said, we're, we're 19 days away from election day. Oh my lord, oh my lord. Um, so one fun thing about this is that I got to vote this week. I got my absentee ballot, I filled it out, I mailed it right back in, uh, as everyone should be doing, especially if you're a college student and you're you know, voting in a swingy state. I'm a Pennsylvania voter, uh, so, you know, my vote really matters, which is very exciting. I went and I had my little pen and I did my thing. And I went with my dear friend, Helen, and she held my ballot for me as we walked to the mailbox. Um, so, you know, all good times. There's nothing more fun than voting. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Um, so again, we are now three weeks out from election day. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, we've got a bunch of debates to talk about. Um, we've got some new polling and some new forecasts uh, and just generally looking at what those major issues are now as we're getting closer and closer and closer to election day. Ah, do you ever scream? Because I do. Um, so first of all, we're going to talk about the Georgia gubernatorial debate. Um, this was the first debate between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp and also potentially the last debate. Um, there's no other debate that's like technically planned, um, but it's entirely possible that they'll that they'll kind of coordinate another one before Election Day actually happens. Um, so, of course, this was a debate between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. Then also importantly on the stage was Shane Hazel, who is a libertarian candidate, hasn't gotten much playtime. But when you look at the like if you were watching the debate, he was right smack dab in the middle of the stage. So Stacey Abrams, um, Shane Hazel, and then Brian Kemp on the other side, which is just hilarious. Like, I don't know why they, they put together the panel like that. Because the, unfortunately for Mr. Hazel, I'm sure he's a great guy. He's like polling like 4%. Like, he's not going to win. Um, and so nobody was like, you know, nobody was attacking him. Nobody was asking him questions, really. It was just like him standing in the middle of them to like break them up or something. I... I can't even begin to tell you. I can't begin to explain. But certainly, like, an interesting strategy from the people that um, organized this debate. Not a decision I personally would have made, but... Because it's also interesting, because we'll talk about this in a second, but for the um, Georgia Senate debate, they also had the Libertarian candidate, but the Libertarian candidate was, like, kind of off to the side. I don't know. Whatever. Sorry to the Libertarians, I guess. Um... But anyway, as I mentioned, so I talked about this race a lot last week, so I don't want to get into it like too much. But, um, you know, this race is a rematch, which means the candidates are, are, are very they, they've sparred on the issues before. They know each other's debate styles. Um, they know each other's policy positions, records, everything else. So, the, every, you know, the main takeaway that I was reading about this debate was that, you know, they really came prepared. Like they were absolutely prepared to debate. They were ready to go. Um, um, and so it was, you know, maybe it was a little bit more of a substantive debate than others that we've seen because, you know, whatever, Brian Kemp's association with like the MAGA wing of the party is what it is. Um, and then also they just were very prepared. They were very coordinated. They kind of knew what they were talking about. Um, and so kind of the main takeaways for this again, so Brian Kemp, as we know, does not have a great relationship with Donald Trump and the Donald Trump wing of the party. Um, but at the same time, you know, he doesn't want to be like celebrating Joe Biden. So he's trying to he was trying to kind of thread this needle and trying to like toe this line 
between everything is terrible economically and socially because of Joe Biden, and therefore you should make put me in as a check to Joe Biden's leadership. And then also kind of com- contrasting it with, well, everything is great in the state of Georgia because I was the governor for the last four years. And look how great we are now under my leadership versus like, look how bad we could be under Stacey Abrams' leadership. So that's a very interesting kind of comparison, a very interesting needle that he has to thread. Um, and kind of an interesting needle to thread for incumbents writ large. Um, so especially, I think, for gubernatorial candidates where they need to kind of compare the state of the country at large to the state of their state. Um, and so that's just kind of an interesting interesting comparison there. And then on the, on the flip side, Stacey Abrams can't say, look how bad everything is in Georgia, because she also has to support the, the bottom line of the Democratic Party. You know, all things equal, she is a party activist, she is an advocate, she is part of the Democratic Party kind of machinery. And so she can't get up there and say, well, everything is bad in the United States right now, everything is bad in Georgia, because she needs to be able to support and say, well, look at all the good things that Joe Biden did in the last two years. And if I'm able to kind of support him through my own policies, look how much better things could be. Um, So that's kind of, again, a very interesting um, line for both of those candidates as a challenger and as an incumbent to kind of balance celebrating their own wins um, or their own party's wins and then also saying, but here's what we could do better and here's how I'm going to be the best person to actually get that done. Um, Yeah, and definitely, certainly like more interesting for governors than for Senate candidates because they are not involved directly in state policymaking. And of course, gubernatorial candidates are, obviously. Also, a side note, a tangent. I love the word gubernatorial. Best word in politics. I love it so much. Anyway. Um, yeah, so again, a lot of issues that they were talking about. Stacey Abrams trying to really focus on what's going wrong in Georgia as opposed to what's going wrong on like a federal level. So she was citing kind of rise in crime rates, which is something that Brian Kemp has been really serious about saying, oh, well, crime has gone down, this, that, the other thing not necessarily the case, Um, an increase in home prices in Georgia, and also a very interesting kind of like, I guess, local policy that I hadn't read much about is that the Chinese government has been buying up large segments of the state's farmland, which is interesting and concerning, and I'm kind of surprised that that's not something that's getting a little bit more airtime, but regardless, (laughs) certainly something to consider and definitely a good policy for... um, kind of Stacey Abrams to be to be bringing up in these debates because I I can't see that being a popular policy for almost anyone so um the state of Georgia also kind of going back to my point about kind of like the party bottom line the relationship between candidates and their party is is kind of different in Georgia than it is in other states um and it's kind of a siloed media environment and so the strategies are very different in Georgia than in other states um they, they, they have kind of more complicated strategies that they're trying to build versus, you know, states like Arizona where they can just be like pro-MAGA, anti-MAGA, move on. Georgia is a little bit more of a complicated state. Um, and again, of course, like the main issues that they're talking about in this race are the same issues that they're talking about in almost all of the debates. They're talking about the economy. They're talking about economic reopening, kind of quote-unquote post-pandemic. They're talking about gun control. They're talking about abortion. Um, You know, and all those things, they're kind of coming down on the party line um, versus kind of being any more complicated with those policy positions there. And then, of course, Mr. Hazel, our libertarian candidate, uh, basically his main policy, his, you know, policy positions that he was presenting during this debate, ending public education, eliminating virtually all police functions, legalizing drug drugs, and stopping property taxes. So, you know, just like kind of pure libertarian nonsense. Um, then, of course, the, the, the point of his presence there, whatever, I don't know what the point of his presence was there, um, but it might become significant because, of course, Georgia is a um, majority voting system. So you need to have 50 plus one in order to 50% plus one in order to win the election. 
and if nobody gets that that nobody exceeds that 50 percent threshold um then it gets pushed to a runoff with those top two candidates so if this libertarian candidate does get a large enough vote share it could extend this process all the way until january again so that'll be really excellent and something that i'll enjoy quite a lot um but yeah that is the georgia gubernatorial debate we also had a georgia two georgia senate debates um one was a quote-unquote normal senate debate with both Raphael warnock and herschel walker and then the other one was just with warnock and the libertarian candidate and an empty podium for herschel walker because he said that he was only going to participate in one debate it's the same situation that happened with Ossoff back in 2020 uh, against David Perdue. He, David Perdue did not show up to the debate, and we got a banger picture of John Ossoff gesturing to an empty podium, which, like, I understand... I mean, I, I guess I sort of understand the logic of appealing to a certain demographic by not coming to... not, not attending some of the debates... I guess if I'm like if I'm like suspending my disbelief and just like floating above it all whatever I guess I can kind of understand like who he's attempting to appeal to by not going to the debate but I have to say the visual of your your opposition candidate gesturing to an empty podium is so bad because in politics it's like the idea of like the empty suit and like this person just says what they're gonna do but they don't actually follow through and they don't actually do any of it and now we have a visual of of the candidate standing next to an empty podium saying like here's a visual representation of this candidate not showing up for you in the same way that he's not going to show up for you in congress like why do you give people that opportunity like symbols are powerful whatever i just think it's very silly and i i I just don't understand why you're handing somebody that visual but again i'm not gonna say that republican senate senate candidates at least in my understanding in my experience are like the smartest candidates in the world (laughs) like i'm not sure if they really know what they're doing but i am whatever i just i just do not understand why they're allowing this visual to actually come through because it's going to be in ads, it's going to be, you know, all over the internet. It's just silly. It's just silly to me. Just show up for the debate. Whatever. Um, but as I mentioned in the past, um, Warnock's campaign, this is actually the interesting thing about the debate with without Herschel Walker there, is that Warnock's campaign has really been kind of making him out to be like the moralistic, more professional, more consistent alternative to Herschel Walker's general being. Um, and so he, at least in the debate where they were together, you know, the, the, the attacks were kind of grazing. He hasn't like come out on Twitter. He hasn't been saying, oh, well, Herschel Walker's a bad person. Here's all the bad things that he's doing. But in the debate where it was just him and the libertarian candidate, he did a lot more like aggressive, um, kind of attacks on Herschel Walker without Herschel Walker in the room. So kind of like gesturing to that empty podium and, and saying like, here's all of the bad things that, that, that this guy is doing, um, which is interesting. And again, like in terms of strategy, I'm sorry if you're hearing muffled sounds, by the way, I'm taking my jacket off. Um, I'm not sure what the strategy is for attacking somebody with more severity when they aren't there to respond. Like, I'm not sure if that's going to really benefit him long-term. But it is interesting, however, that he's kind of getting a little bit more aggressive as the campaign goes along. Um, I think probably what this is, is that Warnock is not a particular... I I, I get the sense that he's not a particularly aggressive dude, but his campaign staff is probably saying, hey, you might want to, like, just be a little bit more aggressive in your attacks. You might want to, like show that you're just as much of a fighter as this guy is, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so he was kind of testing out those potential kind of attacks in a little bit of a safer environment. Um, And now he's going to kind of continue to to, to kind of ramp that kind of stuff up, which is an interesting strategy. I haven't, I don't follow like people from Georgia, (laughs) I guess in general. Um, So I haven't seen any kind of like feedback one way or the other 
um, in like local Georgia news. Um, but it is kind of just, again, an interesting tonal shift as we get closer to the election that, um, you know, Warnock is, is, he's rolling his sleeves up. He's getting ready to go. Um, but anyway, a lot of the issues that were discussed in this debate, same ones that were discussed in the gubernatorial, gubernatorial debate, same issues that we've talked about kind of over and over again over the past couple of weeks, um, and just in general. Um, but then one more fun anecdote from these debates is that um, when both candidates, the, the debate where both candidates were present, um, Warnock made a comment about Herschel Walker pretending to be a cop, pretending to be a cop and threatening a shootout. Um, and then when he was doing this, Herschel Walker pulled out an honorary badge that he got from the Cobb County Sheriff, like a fake, like a play badge, basically. And he got like blasted by the moderator and then by the internet. But he, then he claimed it was real. But it's like an honorary badge that's given to celebrities. It's like getting the key to the city. Like it doesn't give you any authority. The key to the city doesn't actually open anything. It's a symbolic thing. Like it's so funny. Um, and then of course this opens the door to him like having to repeatedly lie about his role in law enforcement. Like he had told people in the military that he worked for the FBI. Like all these different things. Like. Just very upsetting. But I want to just play the clip of him pulling out the badge because I think it's very funny. So with that being said, here is that clip. One thing I have not done, I've never pretended to be a police officer. <laughs> and 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 I've never I've never threatened a shootout with the police. Well, and now I have to respond to that. We are, we are, we are no, moving no, no, on, no. gentlemen. I have to respond to that. And you know what's so funny? I am work with many police officers, <laughs> and at the same time, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, no, 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 Mr. Walker, no, no, no. Mr. Walker, excuse me, truth, Mr. Walker, please, out of respect, I, I, I need to let you know, Mr. Yes. Walker, you are very well yes. aware of the rules tonight. Yes, and you have a prop. Yes. that is not allowed, sir. Yeah. I ask you to put that prop away. Well, it's not a prop. It, it this is, is real. And he said, I but, have a problem. I never worked with law enforcement. It is considered a prop, Mr. Walker. Oh, yes. Excuse me, sir. Yes. You're very well aware of the rules, aren't you? Well, aren't he, you aware of he the rules? brought up the truth. We're, Let's talk about the truth. Th thank you for putting that yes. prop away. You're very well aware of the rules. Um, that made me laugh. Anyway, it's just it's just it's just funny. It's just indicative of such an absolutely bonkers, insane campaign, um, and it continues. It always continues. So that's all I wanted to say on um, Georgia. Now I'm going to move on to a, a state that I haven't talked about a lot, which is probably an issue, but whatever. But um, Wisconsin already also has a fairly competitive Senate campaign going on right now, um, and that's between Mandela Barnes and Ron Johnson, who's the incumbent. Um, and so the last Senate debate happened last week, um, and this has been a fairly like tumultuous campaign, like fairly aggressive, um, and kind of like the main. It certainly seems like in this particular debate, again, the the, the gloves are kind of coming off um, with a lot of these campaigns and a lot of candidates that were trying to be a little bit more moderate are now <laughs> being a little bit more aggressive, um, especially with their kind of campaign strategies and debate strategies. And so that's something we saw in this Wisconsin Senate debate as well. Their main strategy was, quote, to make their opponent a wholly unacceptable choice to voters. Um, so again, I haven't talked about this race much um, this semester, um, but Johnson is a particularly vulnerable incumbent Republican in this cycle. He just has kind of pretty low approval ratings. People don't really like him. Um, and so, like, me not talking about it is also probably why, like, the national news isn't talking about it and why people aren't really donating to the race, but they're spending all of their money on, um, you know, giving small dollar donations to the guy running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, it's just, it's not as flashy of a debate. Um, and that's, that's the situation. So, you know, Johnson has persistently low favorability ratings. They, you know, Republicans aren't really wanting to draw attention to him. Like nobody, nobody really wants to get involved in this race. It's just not particularly flashy or shiny. Um, he is leading in the polls right now, but only by about like three percentage points. Um, so again, this is like a, a competitive race, a more competitive race than, than we think it's going to be. Um, so again, like that's, that, that's important that we do 
again, with, with like just talking about Senate forecasts, we do see a couple competitive races that we don't always expect to be as competitive as they are kind of this close to election day being fairly competitive. It's kind of important. Um, and those the same issues are being discussed in this race as always. Inflation, abortion, social security, et cetera, et cetera. Same old, same old issues. Um, but the one thing that I did want to just cite here is another short clip from, from a debate. Um, at the end of the debate, they were asked to say something nice about each other, which tangentially I hate. Just like it's so dumb and it's like always so awkward. Um, but anyway, I am going to stop talking about the clip. I'm just going to let you listen to it and I'll let you, I'll let you uh, see what you think. If you were in this situation, who do you think's the the better person? With that being said. All right, we are down to one final question here, and both of you have said a lot tonight about each other. Now, when we traveled around the state talking with voters, we heard repeatedly from people tired of divisive politics and attack ads. So our final question here tonight is, both of you have been successful in life. You have 30 seconds here. Mr. Barnes, you go first. What do you find admirable about your opponent? Well, no, no, seriously, I, I do think, you know, the senator has proven to be a family man, and I think that's, that's admirable. Um, you know, that's absolutely to be respected. He, he speaks about his family. He's uh, done a lot to provide for them. I absolutely respect that. Mr. Johnson. I mean, likewise, I appreciate the fact that uh, Lieutenant Governor Barnes had loving parents, a school teacher, father at work third shift, so he had, you know, good upbringing. I guess what puzzles me about that is with that upbringing, why is he turned against America? I mean, why, why, why does he find the right. founding of America awful? Right. It's, it's Somehow, we, puzzles we me. did not. I said, Please we argue. said something admirable. So that's, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's so interesting. It's the same thing as, um, God, what did they say about each other? What, what, did, what did they say about each other when Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton got asked to say something nice about each other? Wait, I'm sorry that I'm, like, going off script right now. What did Donald Trump... <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, even Trump said something nice. Yeah, 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 because in... in during the 2016 election, they got asked, you know, what, like to say something nice about each other. And Hillary Clinton said um, <laughs> that he respects, she respects his children and his children are incredibly able and devoted. And I think that says a lot about Donald. Um, so I think that's, that's great. That's kind of a very hilarious answer. Um, and then Hillary Clinton, or Donald Trump said that Hillary Clinton is a fighter and doesn't quit. So even Donald Trump could say something nice about the other, the other person. Ron Johnson couldn't? That is so funny to me. I love it. So anyway, he got booed, which is pretty funny. But anyway, um, that's all kind of, I just wanted to play that clip because I thought it was so funny and upsetting that, like, our political rhetoric is so bad that we're that we can't even say like one nice thing about each other without saying yeah he has great parents so i wonder why he hates america be quiet it costs so little to just be quiet anyway he certainly i don't think he, he gained any points um from that comment i think his campaign staff was probably in the in the, in the back in the green room like hitting their heads against the wall but anyway um the last debate I want to talk about today is the Florida Senate debate. Um, so this is a Senate debate between Marco Rubio and Val Demings. It happened last night. It was live while I was taking my notes to prepare for this episode. So I don't have like kind of the full rundown, but I kind of pulled out some, some major takeaways and some major uh, kind of thoughts from the initial forecast. Um, so first of all, this was their only debate. It's the only time these two are going to match up this cycle. Um, so that's kind of important. This was kind of their one last chance to, um, you know, say what they wanted, uh, kind of in, in conversation with each other. Um, so this is another race where the Republican incumbent is only leading polling by single digits. You know, it's Florida. So political dynamics are always a little bit atypical. Um, everyone loves to talk about Florida as like the swing state, like it's, it's the swingiest of swing states, blah, blah, blah. I don't 
necessarily see it that way anymore. I think, like, you know, if we're breaking down these competitive races, I would want to put more more fundraising into the Wisconsin race and into the Ohio race than into Florida. Um, but the Democrats will never give up on Florida. They just will never be able to give up on Florida. And you know what? I think that's admirable. I think it's admirable <laughs> that they just will never give up. Um, but anyway, Marco Rubio is Marco Rubio. We don't really have to talk about him. You know, whatever. 2016 presidential candidate. Looks like he has probably, like, fake skin and hair. Um, he, he he may be a wax figure, but it's okay. He's, he's still cool. Um, and then Val Demings is a former congresswoman. She was elected in 2016. Um, and she was the only woman to lead the Orlando Police Department, which, of course, kind of changes the dynamics around conversations around public health and safety. Um, because it, you know, she has a lot more grounding in her ability to say, yeah, actually, no, Democrats, like, don't want to defund the police. And here are the ABC policies that Democrats support that are actually good for public safety. And here's how we are supporting the police. Here's how we're supporting law enforcement while also kind of making it a more equitable thing. Also, you know, she has inside information about what policies are actually going to work to make the make the police forces more more not bad <laughs> and things like that. So again, that kind of changes the dynamic where Marco Rubio kind of can't stand on a platform of just solidly public safety. The Democrats want to defund the, ooh, want to defund the police, this, that, the other thing. Um, because he, he, he does not have that same level of experience, um, which makes Feldemings like kind of a particularly good candidate, um, for this race. Um, of course, other important issues, you guessed it, inflation and abortion, um, but also increasingly they talked about climate change, uh, given the amount of destruction that just happened in Florida due to Hurricane Ian. Um, and then there's a lot of, there's, you know, particular couple specific issues to Florida. Um, one of them that I was just reading about is that the property insurance market in Florida is in freefall. Um, and Val Demings criticized Marco Rubio for not doing enough in Congress to kind of address that issue on a national level and kind of provide some relief for that sector in Florida. So, you know, talking about those bigger national issues, also kind of getting into the weeds about those those specific state issues as well. Um, and then, of course, the issue of guns came up, um, and that is an evergreen issue in Florida post Parkland, um, also kind of an important public safety issue. Um, kind of goes a little bit hand in hand with the issue of police, uh, something that Val Demings has a little bit more ground to stand on um, in this situation. And then also the issue of foreign policy came up. Um, Marco Rubio is a big foreign policy guy. I think he's like high up on the foreign policy committee in the Senate. I could just be lying about that, though. But I know, do, do know that he's like a big, he, he is like his, one of his main issues is foreign policy. Um, so of course, with everything with Russia and Ukraine um, and everything else going on kind of globally, this was kind of his time to shine, um, which is important kind of, you know, his, his opportunity to show his expertise in this like particularly tumultuous area. Although, as we know and have discussed in the past, Voters don't necessarily vote on foreign policy. Um, maybe they will slightly more now because of Ukraine, but also Ukraine like isn't really, it should be the top headline, but it kind of isn't the top headline anymore. Um, so, you know, whether or not people are actually going to be voting on those foreign policy issues, who knows? Who knows? But that is what I want to talk about in terms of debates. Uh, now I want to move on to talking about our first reports out from early voting, particularly out of Georgia. So we do have um, early voting starting in a handful of very important states, including Georgia. Um, and of course, we do know that Georgia voter turnout is extremely important. We talked about um, last week that Stacey Abrams needs like record black turnout in order to win her race. Um, and so we are kind of paying pretty careful attention to that. Um, so in Georgia, ballots already exceeded um, their one day early voting results from 2018 midterms. So we do have record early voter turnout in Georgia. And that has a couple important implications. Um, 
One is that there is the issue being raised around voter suppression in Georgia, especially after the new voting legislation was passed last year or two years ago, whenever it got passed, um, because that was kind of thought that that was going to uh, tamp down on black voter turnout. Um, But we do know now that people are voting and they're voting in big numbers. The issue is now we just don't have like the demographic trends here. We don't have the actual breakdown of what groups are voting in those numbers. Um, So we don't know how far that accessibility to early voting reaches. Um, And in the primaries, there was a big difference between white and black voter turnout. A lot more white people turned out than black people. Um, And so is that due to voter suppression? Is it due to other factors? Um, Just kind of political burnout that we talked about a little bit last week. Something for the political scientists to uncover next week. I'm in a research methods class, so I was like, well, they'll have to do a causal comparative design with a proxy pretest. Like, I hate myself. Um, But anyway, so we don't know how far that accessibility is actually reaching. Um, We don't know if that early voter turnout, we don't know which camp that early voter turnout is good for. But I mean, regardless, more turnout is a good thing, in my opinion, at least. Um, More voting is better than less voting. Um, And then the second important implication here uh, is that early voter turnout tends to be more liberal voters, at least kind of on a macro sense. Um, This might not be an indication of what like the total turnout is going to be, likely isn't an indicator of what total turnout is going to be. So we're not going to know until election day or after. Um, But again, early voter turnout does tend to be does tend to be more liberal voters. Um, which which might be kind of a good sign for the Abrams camp, again, who does need such a high level of uh, black voter turnout in order to have a chance. So these trends are definitely important. Um, and yeah, early voting is going to continue up until election day. There's early voting all over the place. Um, and so we're going to continue to get some kind of answers about what those numbers are looking like and whether or not this is going to be kind of a a record year in terms of voter turnout or whether it's going to be slightly stunted because of that kind of political burnout and partisan nonsense that everybody kind of doesn't want anything to do with anymore. Okay, so moving on from that, um, we also want to talk about some updated forecasts. So things really are bouncing back and forth. Um, And so the question now is, what is the most important now? What was the most important issue a week ago? And what will be the most important issue three weeks from now? Um, because basically what's been happening is that there's this there's this like tension, there's this push and pull between basically the economy and abortion. Um, and every week things start to shift back and forth and that kind of pushes the tide one way or the other. Um, which is, you know, hard to predict, a little bit unpredictable. Um, and so we kind of can't predict what that, what that most important issue is going to be three weeks from now. Um, and now that early voting has started, that's pretty important. Things are starting to get locked in. So the most important issue now is going to influence a certain sect of voters. And then the most important issue 20 days from now is going to influence those people who are voting on election day. Um, so something that I did want to do while we were talking about it is just because the 538 forecast changes every day. So I'm just going to go ahead. I'm just going to pull up the 538 forecast and we're just going to talk through it right now. Um, 538 term forecast. I probably should have opened it before I started, but here we go. Okay, so this says that Democrats are slightly favored to win the Senate, 62 in 100 chance, and the Republicans are favored to win the House and a 74 in 100 chance for the Republicans to win. So let's look at how things changed. Can I see how things changed? Yeah. So over the past three weeks, the Democrats peaked at 71% chance, and now they're all the way back down at 62% chance. So if you look at the curve, it's it's just going up and it's going right back down, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, and then if we go back to the House forecast, again, like the Democrats gained a little bit. They were they peaked at like 32 percent um, in the beginning of October. And now the, the, the two paths are kind of diverging again. Um, which is, again, a fairly significant thing that 
at one point we did see the Democrats kind of in a very, very good position. And now we see them kind of like losing that foothold again, um, which again is, is, is an important thing. So I did just want to pull that up because again, that, that forecast is changing every day. Um, definitely very interesting to watch. Anyway, um, another important issue here is kind of the, oh my gosh, I was like, what's that buzzing sound? It's fully my computer fan going crazy right now. I guess I'm doing too many things. Okay, oops. <laughs> anyway, I was really concerned about the technology, but we're all good. Just ignore me. Um, the other important note that I did want to talk about is kind of the, the democracy issue. And so there's recent polling from the New York Times that found that voters do see democracy as like, quote unquote, in peril, but they aren't prioritizing the issue um, in their voting and they're, they're kind of accepting anti-democracy candidates um, uh, because there are, as we've talked about, like a high number of candidates who do believe that the election was stolen um, or have like otherwise insinuated that the election was stolen. And ultimately a lot of voters just kind of don't care about that issue even though they do believe that like democracy is in peril. Um, so again, 40% of voters are not at, quote, not at all comfortable with voting for a candidate that thought the election was stolen. 39% are very or somewhat comfortable. And that includes 71% of Republicans, um, which is very, very interesting. It's a pretty, like 71% of Republicans saying that they're like fully willing to vote for someone who has claimed that the election is stolen is a pretty significant number. Like, that's not a number that can be, like, necessarily swayed. That's not, like, a 52% situation where you can kind of push them over the, over the edge. 71% is a, is a strong majority. Um, so that's very interesting. And then, of course, there's kind of those other points that they, they pulled on. And again, I'll, I'll post this whole article online somewhere, wherever you listen to the podcast. You can look at the link. Um, but both party... But, Major majority of voters in both parties identified the opposing party as a major threat to democracy. Um, and then there's a lot of, you know, challenging of those institutions that we're kind of relying on right now, mail-in voting, early voting, things like that. Um, and so there's kind of like this dual challenge of those like bedrock institutions, the two-party system, this, that, the other thing. Um, and then of course, like the way that those institutions are applied in voting. So again, you know, Democracy is in peril. The Western decline towards fascism continues continues again. Um, but the main takeaway here, for me at least, um, and I'm sure much smarter people than me have already been getting into this, but there's no way that these midterms are going to go smoothly. Like we, like it's just not going to go well. There's going to be challenges to races left, right, and center. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see if Democrats choose to start challenging some races um, or whether they kind of want to stick with their their ideology that kind of elections are safe and secure. But there's no way that we're going to have things wrapped up by, um, you know, even the week after Election Day. Like we're going to be we're going to be doing this kind of stuff until January again. Um, like it's just going to be like such a mess. And there's so little belief in these institutions that we're just, we're just not in a, in a great place um, where there's no way that in the next 20 days leadership is going to be able to kind of prove to everybody that this is going to work out and our elections are safe. Um, because frankly, I wouldn't be shocked if a Republican did do something to kind of mess with elections. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some kind of behind the scenes things going on um, because we did see that with, with Donald Trump, with January 6th, we know that that like, framework is in place to challenge those elections um, and to kind of mess with those like foundational principles. Um, so we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Not to depress everyone, but we'll see how it goes. Um, now, moving on from that very high note, um, is we're going to talk about the last January 6th hearing, last question mark, question mark, question mark, because who the heck knows? Um, it was their ninth public hearing um, and basically just kind of an interesting culmination of their entire argument 
kind of giving everybody on the committee a little bit of screen time to kind of make their contributions to the committee known. Um, so again, that, that, that means that the format was slightly different than past hearings. Um, first of all, there was no main witness, uh, and so they relied on contributions from all of the members of the committee. Um, there wasn't much like new evidence or new material, but there was some footage of members kind of hunkering down in the Capitol while it was under attack. Um, and so we do have some kind of never before seen footage of Nancy Pelosi, of Chuck Schumer, um, of other members kind of what, what was going on with them during the attack and kind of what they were trying to do in order to resolve kind of what was going on and understand exactly what was going on. Additionally, there's evidence that kind of cements the fact that advisors were telling Trump to claim victory on election day, regardless of what forecasts were saying, regardless of what everyone was saying. Um, and so, you know, he did this, and he, but he privately acknowledged that he had lost the election. Um, and then, of course, him continuing to lose those legal battles um, throughout November, December, um, really frustrated him, all kind of leading up to his instigation of the attack on January 6th. Um, the other particularly noteworthy bit here, again, we talked about footage of members um, in the Capitol. Some of that, a lot of that footage was of Nancy Pelosi, um, kind of this never before seen footage, again, of her um, making kind of frantic phone calls, trying to get the National Guard in, trying to get Trump to call off the attack. Um, again, I, I feel like I've every time I talk about January 6th, I mention this, but something that I think is so upsetting is that every time we see this, you know, never before seen footage, you really have to think about how close we came to a member of Congress literally getting murdered in the Capitol. Like just thinking about like how bad the aftermath was um, just in this sense. But imagine what the what it, what would have actually happened if a member of Congress was literally murdered. Um, and I, I think we, we always see how close people actually got on that day. Um, which is just always something that's that's really harrowing to think about when you watch that footage. Um, it's also crazy to me, again, tangentially, that there's still never-before-seen footage. Like, we've been doing this for two years. Why are you guys still hanging on to all this footage? Wh where is it? What are you doing with it? Um, but anyway, I did want to play one short clip of Nancy Pelosi kind of talking to the National Guard. Um, and so I'm just going to play that short clip just because I think it's interesting to hear kind of her panic and also kind of just seeing what she was dealing with during this time. So with that being said, here is that. Hi, Governor. Uh, this is Nancy. Uh, Governor, I don't know if you have been approached about the uh, Virginia National Guard. Mr. Hoyer was connect, uh, speaking to uh, uh, Governor Hogan, uh, but I still think you probably need the okay of the, uh, the federal government in order to come into another jurisdiction. Thank you. Oh my gosh. They're just breaking windows. They're doing all, all kinds of, it's really that somebody, they said somebody was shot. It's just, it's just horrendous and all at the instigation of the President of the United States. Okay, thank you, Governor. I appreciate what you're doing. And if you don't mind, I'd like to stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Virginia Guard has been called in. Yeah, and I'm just talking to Governor Northam. And what he said is they sent 200 of uh, state police and a unit of the National Guard. So that's, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting. Um, and seeing those visuals again is, 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 is pretty interesting as well. Kind of watching them watch everything unfold as we are watching everything unfold. Um, yeah, really interesting. Also, kind of a funny little note is that when... Nancy Pelosi hangs up the phone. She like hands her phone like to like whatever staffer is standing next to her, and just I'm imagining being Nancy Pelosi's staffer on that day, being like, gotta get you know. It's just interesting, just interesting. It's also interesting that that footage kind of suggests that Nancy Pelosi n kind of knew and was building the narrative, not even narrative, but kind of talking about the fact that um, Donald Trump was responsible for instigating the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Like it was, it was, it was not like this was something that was 
a political argument that was made later. Like this was something that they were talking about as it was happening because they could see the direct A leads to B correlation, causation, connection there, um, which is interesting. And the biggest takeaway here is that the committee did vote to subpoena Donald Trump. This is probably mostly a political move rather than anything else. Um, likely nothing is going to come out of it other than the fact that much like in the Georgia senatorial debate, there's going to be an empty chair. Um, you know, what's the value of his absence, though? Is that going to kind of continue to, to galvanize the troops that he's like standing up to the to the Democratic war machine? I don't know. Um, Trump has said kind of in private to advisors that he'd rather testify to the committee kind of live during primetime, which will be such a show. It'll be like such a trip, um, but still kind of interesting. And there's also kind of on the same topic, there's no Supreme Court precedent that says whether or not Congress has the power to compel a former president to testify about his actions in office. Um, so it's it's also like not clear whether or not they can actually get him to come in. There are member there are presidents who have testified to Congress before. There's presidents that have given depositions. Um, so it's not like there's no um, basis for this, but the subpoena may or may not have any kind of political power um, or or I guess legal power, substantive authority um, as they're kind of moving forward through this process. Again this whole thing is just trying to place the blame on Donald Trump as kind of the linchpin of the big lie, right? They're just, this is the narrative that they've been trying to build for months now is that it's because of Donald Trump that January 6th happened. And then it's because of January 6th that we have all of this like broader political unrest now around elections, around politics, which means we can kind of directly link Donald Trump to this this level of political unrest, political distrust, which is a pretty important connection to make, especially, I, I don't know. The issue is, and I've talked about this before with January 6th, is we all can see what happened, but there's no getting through to the people who see it and still don't care. Like, there's just nothing we can do about it, um, which is upsetting, but... Uh, there's nothing we can do. There's literally nothing that we can do to convince people that they should care about this issue. Um, and I think the January 6th committee did the best that they could, but there's still nothing that they can say. There's nothing they can say. They've said all that they can say, and they're still not moving the needle, um, which is upsetting. But anyway, um, so what at this point is the future of the committee? So, as I mentioned, Liz Cheney did lose her primary election. She was the major, one of the major driving forces of the commission from the Republican side. Um, so, you know, next Congress, when the Republicans kind of inevitably take control of the House, they're probably going to get rid of the commission altogether, uh, which is probably why they're, they're, they're rushing to wrap up everything now. Um, there's still a lot of loose ends, though. Uh, will Trump testify? We still don't know anything about what Ginny Thomas's role was in January 6th and kind of what was going on there. Um, we, you know, if, if there was, if she did have a role, if she was kind of liable, if she was kind of petitioning the government in a certain way, uh, what does that mean for kind of the sanctity of the Supreme Court? What does that mean for our, our, the impact on like our judicial systems moving forward? Um, and then there's also the question of a criminal referral. So we have this subpoena to Congress, but obviously Congress doesn't have any, like, criminal legal authority. So are they going to suggest to the Attorney General that he prosecute Donald Trump? Like, what's what's the actual kind of, like, long-term situation here? What's the benefit, what's the detriment of going through with a um, criminal referral like that? I just don't know. Um, and the situation here also with kind of the law is that Donald Trump is Teflon man. No, nothing sticks to him. Nothing sticks to him. He, every single... He's in a court case every week. And it's like nothing is happening. That people can throw things at him, throw things at him, throw things at him. And no kind of um, challenges to his authority are really sticking. 
So that's upsetting, and I'm sorry that everything is depressing, but everything is depressing, so it's time to just move on and hope for the best. So, with all that being said, it is now time for our fun, scary, weird political story of the week. So, here's this story, and I saw it on Twitter, and I said that, that's not real. And what I'm, what I'm doing when I'm, like, just going through the week whatever, when I'm, when I'm thinking about the show is if I see like a particular news story or, or a comment or whatever, I'll like bookmark it on my Twitter and then I'll like be able to go back and be like, oh, right, that was an interesting thing, whatever. A little bit of, you know, looking back into the behind the scenes process of sheep thrills. Um, but I bookmarked this tweet and every time I went into my bookmarks, I like literally gagged. I was like, there's no way, <laughs> like this is a real thing. But anyway, story I want to talk about is Manhattan Manhattan congressional candidate Mike Itkiss shared his own sex tape in order to highlight his quote sex positive platform, um, and he stated basically that like you know candidates have to do more about talking more than talk about legalizing sex work. Like, do you really believe in sex work, or are you just saying that? And Mike Itkiss believes in sex work. Oh my lord, oh my lord. So he literally published his sex tape online, um, and it's so upsetting. <laughs> and I was, like, reading more about it last night, like, as I was putting this together. And apparently he's trending on Pornhub. And it's like, I don't, I don't know. I guess go crazy. I, I, I appreciate the, the thought. The application is interesting. But, you know, if you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk, I guess. Are you really, you know, pro-legalizing sex work if you haven't slept with a prostitute? I, I don't know. <laughs> I do not know. Anyway, anyway, that's our that's our political story. Just wild and insane this week. Um, just felt that that needed to be shared. Even though my parents listen to the show. I'm just going to tell them not to listen to the last five minutes. That's okay. Um, but with that being said... That is all I wanted to cover this week. I got through this a little bit faster than I thought I was going to, but that's okay. Um, if you're interested in following the show online, you can follow on Twitter at CheapThrillsGW or on Instagram at CheapThrillsRadio. Um, again, we've got two more regular shows until Election Day, and then we'll have our big post-Election Day extravaganza. Um, so get excited for that. Um, with all that being said, I hope you guys have an excellent week. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful fall weather and I will talk to you next week. See you later.